For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The Day of His Judgment, Part 2. So uh, when we arrive now at the end of Revelation 11, uh, we've come to not only the end of this cycle in the book of Revelation, but we come to the end of the age. And the Lord Jesus Christ at this point at the end of the age has returned in victory. It's recorded here in Revelation 11. And it is time for the everlasting kingdom to be fully and finally consummated. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The people of God at this time, we see at the end of this cycle and at the end of the age, have been raised from the dead, and the final judgment upon the wicked has begun. All of this, this complex of events that take place at the end of the age, has um, erupted in praise and worship in heaven, right? Proclamation, proclamations of praise out of the vault of heaven. Verse 16, the 24 elders lead the way. Uh, they who sat before God on their thrones, these elders representing Old Testament and New Testament saints, they fall on their faces and they worship God saying, we give you thanks. Notice their gratitude, right? Notice the gratitude. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations, they don't respond with thanksgiving. The nations were angry and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Now this is no, if you think about this with me, this is no empty, shallow, or uninformed praise. This praise, the praise that takes place uh, at the end of the cycle, the praise that takes place at the end of the age, is praise that is the culmination or the climax of a redemptive work that began with a promise of God in the garden. In other words, this is praise that is the, the culmination of millennia of God working out a promise that he initiated in Genesis chapter three. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. He'll deal a death blow to the serpent. You shall bruise his heel. So by this point at the end of the age in Revelation 11, again, this has been a multi-millennial work of God. Uh, This has been thousands of years uh, in the making, so to speak, as Almighty God has uh, carried out, has executed his decrees on the earth to redeem a people, to call a people out of the nations for his own name. And all of creation erupts in worship and they're worshiping God for what he has done. They're worshiping God for who he is in fulfilling his promises as a covenant-keeping God. But they're also worshiping God for the implications of this great consummation. At the end of the age, we're going to be ushered into glory. We're going to be ushered into an eternity in communion with God. So this, this worship is not an... Um, it's not just another day on the job, so to speak. <laughs> this, this is a culmination of... A tremendous um, divine accomplishment of redemption. So by this point in Revelation 11, uh, this worship, words just simply uh, don't do it justice. It's the point of that. Um, They sing praise at the consummation of all things. We give you thanks because you have taken your great power and have reigned. God has taken over. 
Now that consummated reign in his consummated kingdom that involves the resurrection and vindication of his, his covenant people, people that he came to save, that consummated reign was, was waited for, has been waited for. It is the blessed hope of the church. The martyrs under the altar in Revelation chapter 6 are crying out for it. Right? If you remember the, the cry of the martyrs in Revelation 6, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The answer to that question comes at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now and no longer, right? The answer is this long and no longer. They're each given a white robe, told to wait until the number of their fellow servants has been completed. Well, the number of their fellow servants is now complete at the end of the cycle, at the end of the age. And the time has come for him to judge those who dwell upon the earth. Ezekiel 38 gives us a depiction of their judgment. If you want to turn there with me, let's read this section together. Ezekiel 38. And Ezekiel 38, in the vision given to Ezekiel, there's this depiction of their judgment and the vindication of our God. And that take, takes place in, if you look there with me, verse 18. It will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy... And in the fire of my wrath, I have spoken. Surely in that day, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, and all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. We see that, that language of earthquake, that apocalyptic language, also repeated in Revelation. That's an indication of final judgment. It's what that language indicates. The mountains shall be thrown down more apocalyptic language that portends the end, right? The steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against God throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on, his, on him, on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus, I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord. You see how the judgment of God vindicates God, vindicates God's holiness, vindicates God's justice. He brings justice upon the wicked at the end of the age and glorifies his own name. And knowing the day of his judgment is at hand, knowing that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the one who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ lives in light of that day. We understand that that's coming. We know that that's the case. The Bible tells us of that. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent from him, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? Because Paul says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This day is coming. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed, and he has given evidence of this. He has given testimony of this by raising that man from the dead. Chapter 5, verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, that's the way the righteous, that's the way that the just respond to the revelation of God's righteous judgment. The unjust are not so. The Bible describes them as scoffers who walk according to their own lusts, saying, 2 Peter 3, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming, right? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. 
For this, uh, so they willfully forget, Peter says, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. They forget the flood. People in our day forget the flood or they cover it up. The Grand Canyon was created by a trickle of a river over billions of years. And that's what, no, that's called a great flood. <laughs> um, they forget, they ignore, they neglect, they reject the flood by which the world that then existed perished in God's judgment. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In the same way that judgment fell in that day, it will most certainly fall again. Why is that? Because God is not slack concerning his promises and God will judge the wicked. In Jude, verse 16, uh, Jude describes these as grumblers, complainers, sound familiar? Walking again, walking according to their own lusts. That's how the wicked are described. They're described as those who walk according to their own lusts. They mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage with them or over them. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember their words, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. There it is again. These are sensual persons. They're they're consuming everything on their own senses, right? They're sensual person who cause divisions, not having the spirit. They are scoffers walking according to their own lusts, grumblers and complainers walking according to their own lusts, rather than they're walking according to their own lusts, rather than being those who deny themselves, take up their own crosses daily and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the contrast between the two. You can walk according to your own lusts or called to discipleship, you can deny yourself, take up your own cross and follow Jesus Christ. Now these grumblers and complainers represent the nations over in Revelation chapter 11. And they are angry when the Lord returns to execute his great wrath. There will be those at the end who are shocked, like those in Matthew chapter seven. You remember that account, right? Uh, they've, they've been walking their entire lives, they've been walking the broad road to destruction, and they've been thinking all along that they're on the narrow way that leads to life. They believe they're on the narrow way that leads to life, but they're walking the broad road that leads to destruction. At the end, when they stand before God in judgment, panic overtakes them. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And the Lord declares to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They've deceived themselves, right? There will be those in the end who are shocked, but whether it's shock, whether it's disbelief or fear, all of that at the end gives way to an angry rebellion. And the Bible describes the nations as angry, enraged with God, who would presume to have authority over his creation or uh, hold his creation in judgment for their sin against him. They're angry. And so in anger, responding in anger to God, God meets them with a righteous retributive anger of his own. That's lex talionis, right? That's retributive justice. Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. They respond in wicked, rebellious anger. God responds in righteous wrath. The time of the dead that they should be judged. Now is the time that the dead should be judged. If you're a dispensationalist and you're looking at uh, eschatology and primarily the book of Revelation is, is running chronologically from chapter one to chapter 22, uh, you can make 
really no sense of the book. What we're speaking about here is the day of his wrath, the day of his judgment, the day of the Lord that takes place at the return of Jesus Christ at the very end of the age. And here we are in the very middle of the book. Right? We, we cannot understand the book of Revelation if we're going to look at it chronologically that way. The only way to, to understand the book of Revelation is in terms of those cycles, those seven cycles of sevens that we see in the book. And if you're looking, if you're looking at the book through that structure, the book then makes sense. It, it, it comes together. We can understand what the Lord is communicating. So again, here we are at the end of the third of seven cycles. We're at the blast of the seventh trumpet, which brings us to the end of the cycle. And this describing now events that take place at the very end of the age, right? The kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdom of our Lord and the kingdoms of his Christ. Uh, when does that happen? That happens at the very end of the age at the return of Jesus Christ. Here, the day has come that the dead should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. When does that take place? It takes place at the end of the age at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We're at the end. So this is, not a, um, this is not difficult in that sense. When you get the structure right, it helps us to interpret the book. And again, all of this, lex talionis. The wrath of God appointed for those who are wrathful, right? Destruction appointed for those who destroy, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth, lex talionis. Now notice, however, in the context of verse 18, that we return once again to this recurring theme of God's glory and salvation through judgment. The day of the Lord does not merely involve the judgment of the wicked. It's wrapped up together with the Lord rewarding his saints. That day has come when you should reward your servants and destroy those who destroy the earth. That you should judge the wicked and usher your saints into glory. Right? These things are brought together. It's the theme of God's glory, glorified in his justice, glorified in his mercy, God's glory in the salvation of his people through a judgment that falls upon the wicked. God's glory in salvation through judgment. That's interesting. In the very same way that many professing believers are uncomfortable with the idea that they too are going to stand before God in judgment one day, and stand before the judgment seat of Christ that day. That's it's to a, a large part of evangelicalism today. They don't understand. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone will will appear before the the bar of God's judgment one day. God's justice. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In the same way that people are under, uncomfortable with that concept, they're also uncomfortable with the idea that believers get rewards. That on that day, God is going to reward His prophets and the saints. That day has come that the dead should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, both small and great. And not just reward with eternal life. That's certainly a tremendous reward, but there are rewards associated with what you do in this life. And that's going to take place before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, each one of us, may receive the things or be recompensed for the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In other words, the judgment is not simply a place for the wicked to stand before God so that the wicked can be recompensed for all their evil deeds that they have done in the body. This is retribution and reward. Many of us, many of us grew up in churches that essentially boiled all of Christianity down to one event. 
right? And that event being whether you were saved or not, right? That event being to that day that you walked the aisle and said the prayer, or that day that you said you believed in Jesus Christ, right? They boil all of Christianity down to one event and whether as a result of that one event, you are saved or not saved. And because we're, we're careful, we wanna be careful to avoid any notion that salvation is something, somehow something that we can earn, we bristle against the notion of rewards associated with the Christian life, with life that comes after salvation, right? In other words, many in the churches I grew up in, that, that day that you were saved, that day you walked the aisle or you said the prayer or whatever, that was, the, that was the day. That was the day. After that, well, you know, it's all just icing on the cake. It really doesn't matter after that, right? That's the day that matters. When it matters, brothers and sisters, how we live, it matters what we do in this life. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Like, it matters. It won't only be justification that is the concern of that day of judgment. It won't only be justification. It'll also be sanctification. It'll also be perseverance. It'll be faith and love and good works. Your life will bear evidence of your faith or it won't. Your life will bear evidence of a living, in the words of James, a living faith, or your life will bear evidence of no faith at all. We know, we know for a fact, we know for a fact that judgment day will not involve condemnation for those who are justified. We know that for a fact. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. But notice Revelation eleven eighteen does not say, it does not say this, the time has come that he should reward and punish your servants, the prophets and the saints. Doesn't say that, doesn't, does it? The day has not come at that time for God to reward and punish your servants, the prophets and the saints, but rather to reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. If you're in Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ has taken your punishment. He has paid the penalty which you could not pay. He has taken your sin and shame upon himself in his body on the tree. He stood in your place and died for you if you're in Christ through faith. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And entering into everlasting life on that day will then depend entirely, entirely on whether or not you were in union with Jesus Christ, right? It will depend entirely on whether or not Jesus Christ has been your substitute. It'll depend upon whether or not you are in union with Jesus Christ, clothed in his righteousness, or whether you, you stand before God clothed in your own unrighteousness. That'll be the factor that determines whether you enter heaven or not. That being said, though, judgment day for the believer is not a day of retribution for evil, but rather judgment for the believer will be a day of reward for those, verse 18, who fear his name, small and great. Now, there are indications of this fact throughout the New Testament. Uh, and I want you to turn with me to Matthew 25, and let's look at one of those, Matthew 25. Where in Matthew 25, we, we find the parable of the talents. And this is one example of many. Where there is this indication of reward in the day of judgment for God's people. Matthew 25, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven, and this is in a, in a context of kingdom parables. So you have the, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Those wise virgins are the ones who prepare for that day. In this life, they take oil in their lamps. They trim their wicks. They prepare themselves in this life for his return. Right? It's a kingdom parable. Um, there's this parable of the uh, unjust, um, or the, the parable of the talents. Um, and then you have the, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, right? He's going to separate one from the other. 
So in uh, the parable here of talents, for example, read in verse 14, the kingdom of heaven, that's what we're talking about here. Uh, we're tying this account, this story, this biblical story that, that depicts a spiritual reality. So what a parable is. Uh, we're describing the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Uh, we can uh, see how that pertains to God, right? Or the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has delivered goods to us. His uh, gospel has been uh, given into the hands of his church, so to speak, to preach uh, to this world. And he's gone off into a far country to return at some point in the future, right? To one, verse 15, he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded them and made another five talents also. That's interesting. He took what was given to him and he went on and labored with it. Labored with it. There are those who would say, I'll just let go and let God. Right? I've been given these blessings, the blessings of salvation. Now I'm just going to recline and take my ease and whatever comes, comes. Right? Whatever happens, happens. <laughs> it's like, that's not what we get from the parable of the talents. That this one who will be commended here soon, very shortly, took his five, went out and made five more. He labored with it to get a return on that investment, right? Uh, verse 17, likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground. It's like that one that reclines on his couch. I'm just gonna put this talent under the cushion and I'm gonna sit here on it so no one can take it from me. When the master comes back, I'll give him his one back, right? After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. What does that sound like? It sounds like judgment. When he returns, there is a settling of accounts. There is accountability associated with what we have done with what we have been given in this life. In other words, brothers and sisters, you've been given a stewardship it's not simply and only gifts of grace. You've been given a stewardship of that grace, a responsibility with that grace. There is an accountability associated with what we have done in this life. Verse 20, so he who had received the five talents came and brought five other talents also saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, commending him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of our Lord. So no matter what you've been given, right? We've been given gifts as Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about. We've been given gifts according to a measure of faith. And with those gifts, we are to use them for his glory. We are to take what we've been given. We are to use that for the sake of the kingdom and see a return from those things. So that when we stand before God, we're not standing there like that man who had buried his one talent in the ground. You know, we didn't take the talent that we've been given, wrap it in tinfoil, put it in a metal lunchbox and bury it in the backyard and hope nobody gets to it, right? That's not, that's not the people of God. Verse 22, he who'd received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Those are rewards. You notice how there is an appropriate reward for an appropriate investment, right? The one who um, 
uh, had five and made five. He was faithful over a few things. He was made ruler over many things. The one who had two and returned two besides them, his Lord, well done. You took the grace that was given. You got the return on that investment, so to speak, or you bore fruit and result as a result of your uh, efforts with that grace. And I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's reward. That's not simply speaking or only speaking of heaven per se, or eternal life per se, or the crown of life per se, but rewards associated with our work in this life. He then rebukes the lazy servant who does not produce fruit with what he has been given, and that lazy servant is cast into outer darkness. The one who produced no fruit didn't only lose his reward, he lost his life. He lost his soul. Do you see? We are, that's John chapter 10. We are to abide in him and so produce much fruit. The Christian should be pursuing fruitfulness. We should think that way, brothers and sisters. That that should be um, the way that we think about ministry, the way that we think about our service to the Lord. I want to produce fruit for his name. The Lord has lavished grace and blessing upon us. Let's produce fruit for the glory of his name. Let's produce fruit. If you are fruitless in that day, it proves you were never one of his to begin with. This is not so that man may at last be justified by his works. It's not for that purpose. You'll not stand before God and tuck your thumbs under your overall straps and say, look at all that I've done for you. I deserve heaven, right? <laughs> That's not the way this works. This is not so that God can finally determine after looking at all the evidence where a man is going when he dies, right? They all wait and figure it out at the end. God's gonna look at everything you've done and then make a decision. You get heaven and you don't. That's not the way this works. This is for the purpose of displaying the glory of God before all creation. To the, the glory of his grace, the glory of God is magnified in his perfect justice or the glory of God is magnified in his infinite grace. Those works that we do, that we do, those works do not bear evidence to our glory. Those works bear evidence of his grace to his glory, right? That's what they're for. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's, I wanna make that point for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, obviously. He makes this statement that's helpful in consideration of this particular subject. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and look there at verse 10. Paul says, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Right, set that up in context. Verse nine, I'm the least of all the apostles, Paul says who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But I am what I am. And Paul says, I am what I am entirely by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. In other words, his grace was given to me, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but in contrast to his grace toward me being in vain, I labored. What is that saying? God gave Paul grace to labor, right? God gave 
Paul grace, that grace is a stewardship. That grace given to me was not in vain, but rather, rather than it being in vain, rather than it being in vain, I labored with it. He's producing talents, isn't he? He was given a talent and he's producing talents. There's a contrast. His grace toward me, not in vain, but rather I labored more abundantly than they all. But Paul acknowledges that it's not his labor, yet not I, but it was the grace of God which was with me. (laughs) So in other words, you can't get out of that anywhere that somehow Paul believes that he did something that was meritorious. It's simply not meritorious. Anything that Paul did, he realizes it was the grace of God. Grace was given to me, so I labored. But when I labored, it wasn't me laboring. It was God laboring in me. It was the grace of God toward me. And so he gets all the glory for it, right? You, you can't escape that. Who, why are you the way that you are? Because God has made you that way. Now we sin and we hinder. We can take, we can receive the grace of God in vain. But when you labor and when you work and when you produce fruit, you can't take credit for that. That's the grace of God at work in you. We're not going to stand before God in judgment and boast of our works, boast of our effort, or boast of our all the things that we had done. It's simply not going to take place. God gets all the glory for all of that. And so because that is, brothers and sisters, to the glory of God, then what should we do? We should labor more abundantly than they all. We should labor with it. We've been, we've been given 10 talents. We've been given 100 talents, 1,000 talents. In Jesus Christ, there isn't, there isn't a number that can calculate all the blessings we've been given. So now let's take those blessings and let's work with them to produce fruit to the glory of God because in that day, it's going to glorify him. Not because it's going to glorify us. How preposterous would that, is that even, does that even sound to you? It's not going to glorify us. It's going to glorify him. All of that's going to glorify him. It's going to, it's going to be demonstrated. God is going to, vindicate his word, his grace, his glory in the love and devotion and service of his people. That's what's going to happen on that day. God is going to be glorified in the faith-filled, love-filled devotion of his people um, with the grace that he's given to them. Our works glorify him. God is magnified in their faith. God will be glorified for his grace. Here stands one right? Who is born again by my spirit. Here is the one who is given a new heart. Here is the one who has made a new creation. Here is the one who is united to my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I authored faith in his heart. I was the one who finished faith in his heart. I worked in him according to my good pleasure. Here is the one who has been working all this time by my grace, right? It all magnifies God. It all glorifies him. Was this one living life for himself like the rest of the world? No, he wasn't. Was he walking after the course of this world? No, he wasn't. According to the prince of the power of the air? No, according to the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, all those, the rest of creation who will die and perish in hell? No, he wasn't. This one was laboring to the glory of my own grace, my mercy, right? It's all to the glory of God. He lived for me, it will be said. All these works are the fruit of my grace. You see how that magnifies God. It doesn't glorify man. Those rewards don't glorify man. Those rewards glorify God, the one who gives them. And that is in keeping, if you will, with Ezekiel 38 and God's intention to show the nations, to display to creation that I am the Lord who does all these things so that the Lord might be glorified in them. 
Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. If you flip back a few pages to the left. 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3 is plagued, plagued by division. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. So Paul says then in verse 5, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed. We're tools, we're instruments in the master's hand. We are ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. Notice Paul does not say, we are ministers through whom you believed as we worked in our own strength to do this for our own glory. Paul doesn't say that. As I, I worked hard and it was for your sake, you have every reason to thank me. Paul doesn't say that. We are ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Paul said, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God is the one who produced the fruit. So then, verse seven, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters. They're nothing, but God who gives the increase is everything, right? Then he says something very interesting, verse eight. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. It's interesting, right? At the same time, all of that terminates upon God's glory because God is the one who gives these gifts. There are going to be rewards to the glory of his grace. There are going to be rewards given to God's people for their labor. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. God is not unjust to forget the labor of his servants, as the Bible says. Four, verse nine, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. What is this, all this pointing to? It's pointing to a stewardship. I have responsibility. I've got to be careful with how I discharge my responsibilities, my duties with this stewardship. For no other foundation can anyone lay but that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Take care that you're building on the right foundation. Take care. Take care that you're laboring in the right cause, doing the right things. Why? Reward. And it, it's not only reward that should motivate us for the sake of reward, but that reward glorifies God. The reward glorifies God. There's much about this idea of reward, this concept of rewards in the Christian life that should motivate the Christian to be to labor more abundantly in the work of the gospel. It should cause us to labor. Verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, that each one's work, each one's work will become clear for the day. That's the day of judgment. The day when we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That day will declare it. It will declare whether you were building with gold, silver, precious stones, or you're building with wood, hay, or straw, because it will be revealed by fire. Fire, a term referring to judgment. The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. In other words, we don't lose our salvation, but there is, there is reality, truth to this concept that there are rewards given for your work during this life. 
Paul, when Paul mentions loss, Paul cannot mean loss in terms of our inheritance or our eternal life. Those things are promised by God to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the loss of eternal life or the loss of our inheritance. He can only mean then, he can only mean the loss of reward. The one who suffers loss is suffering the loss of a reward that he would have had for laboring abundantly with the grace that he'd been given. So Paul's concern here then in 1 Corinthians 3 is a faithful stewardship. Our concern from the parable of the talents should be a faithful stewardship. Who are you living for? (laughs) Who are you living for? What are you doing with the grace that has been poured out upon you? What are you doing with the grace that God has given you? He's given you gifts. What are you doing with them? Is the grace that he has lavished upon you, has he lavished upon you those graces, those blessings in vain? Or are you, with the grace that he's poured out on you, are you laboring abundantly with them? Are you taking the five and pursuing five more? Are you taking the two and pursuing two more? Our salvation is not a salvation by works, but our salvation certainly is a salvation that works, right? It certainly is a salvation that works. Our works are the evidence of a living faith in Jesus Christ and all of that to the glory of God, the glory of his grace at work in us. 1 Timothy chapter 5, this text is interesting to me too as it pertains to this. In verse 24, Paul says to Timothy, some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment. It's evident that one is a son of the devil and that he's going to perish in the day of judgment. They're evident in this life. But the Bible says that, but those sins of some men follow later. In other words, they're revealed at the judgment. Likewise, verse 25, likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident. We see their good works and we glorify God in the day of visitation, right? The, The good works are meant to glorify God. And those good works of others, Uh, cannot be, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Eventually, they will be, in the day of judgment, will be revealed and rewards will be given. The day, the day, as Paul says, will reveal it. I want to give you an illustration of this. Um, If you remember, uh, we were talking about this account with someone here recently. Uh, The account of the two harlots and uh, and the judgment of Solomon in uh, 1 Kings chapter 3. If you remember that account from 1 Kings 3, uh, two harlots brought a baby to King Solomon. Uh, each claiming that the the baby was hers. That baby's mine. The other one said, no, she took my baby. That baby's mine. It's 1 Kings 3, verses 16 through 27. So they asked, it became, they're quickly, it quickly devolved into a he said, or a she said, she said impasse, right? It was an impasse. And they asked King Solomon to act as judge between them. They had both given birth to sons about the same time. One of the women had rolled over in her sleep on top of her son during the night, and the baby died. So moms, be really careful with that. <laughs> Don't roll over. Put something there or put them in the crib, bassinet. you better, right? Don't roll over on top of your baby. Um, so the woman rolled, rolled, rolled over on top of her son. Her son died. So she got out of bed in, in the night, took her dead child, went over to the other harlot who had given birth about the same time, a son the same age, replaced her baby with her dead child and took her baby as her own. Um, She claimed the baby was her own. When the mother woke up, the other mother woke up the next morning, she was laying next to a dead baby that obviously wasn't hers. And she found her son with the other harlot. 
So it quickly became a she said, she said. So Solomon, what is Solomon? How did Solomon judge between the two women? Solomon said that a sword should be brought <laughs> and that the baby should be divided and one half given to each of the mothers. Problem solved. Take the baby, let's cut the baby in two. You take half and you take half. Solomon, very wise, the true mother cried out, Oh Lord, give her the child and by no means kill it. Right? That's the baby's mother. <laughs> that's what Solomon, that's infinite wisdom, right? The wisdom of God, in other words. Give her the child and by no means kill it. Solomon said, this woman is the mother. Give her the child. She's the mother. What was Solomon looking for in that account? Solomon was not looking for some work by which the true mother could earn the child. Right? Think with me about that. Solomon was not looking for a work that the mother could do to earn the child. He was looking for a deed that would prove that the child was already hers by birth. He was looking for a way to prove that she was already the mother. That's the way God looks at our works in the day of judgment. He's not looking for works that earn our justification. He's not looking for works that earn our pardon. He's looking for works that prove that we've already been pardoned. He's looking for works that prove we are already a son of God and dwelt by a spirit united to Jesus Christ, right? He's looking for works that give evidence of that and they will show up. If you're a Christian, they will show up. It's to the glory of God. God sees to it that that's the case. That is to the glory of his own grace. Well, the obvious question for us, brothers and sisters, is what will be the evidence that is displayed when you and I stand before the judgment seat of Christ? What evidence will be displayed? No, Paul, Paul would be able to stand before God in the day of judgment and say, the grace of God was abundant toward me and I labored in it more abundantly than they all. I think it'd be commendable for us to desire to say the same kind of thing. <laughs> This life is short. It is a vapor. It's a mist that vanishes. It's going to last and it's gone. Like I look at some of the kids. Uh, I saw Asher today. It's like he's already walking around. <laughs> it's just It goes by so quickly. So only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What are we doing? What are we doing with our time? What are we doing with our money, our resources, our energies, our lives? What are we doing? Right? Um, what will bear evidence in the day of judgment that we are a child of his, that we were good, faithful stewards of the grace that's been poured out on us? Those good works will. And, and they will bear witness, they will bear evidence to his glory, not to our own, not to our own. They'll bear evidence to his glory. So we should pursue fruitfulness. We were talking about that this morning. I mentioned a um, uh, concept that the brothers and I have been talking about. There was a book that was written some time ago um, by a man who uh, was named Mark Cahill. And the, the title of the book was The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. And uh, that was, uh, in Mark Cahill's book, was evangelism. And th that's... Um, He's making a point 
true, there's, there's not going to be any need for evangelism in heaven. Let's serve the Lord in that way now. We have an opportunity to be faithful to him in that good work. In that good work, we have that opportunity now in this life only. So let's glorify God in laboring in that good work now in this life. And that's true. Like We, sh- we should be preaching the gospel. We have this life only to serve in, in that way. But I think, in relationship to our conversation this morning, I, I think that that is a, just a, not to cast any aspersions on that book. It's a fine book. I think it's a, just a bit short-sighted in the sense that the Lord Jesus Christ loved us by suffering in our place. He loved us in that way. And it's in this life only that I, that I have the opportunity to express my love and devotion for him analogously or similarly to the way in which he showed his love toward me. It's in this life only. I'm not going to be able to serve him in the face of persecution in heaven. I'm not going to be able to serve him in the face of suffering in heaven. I have this life only to serve him, to to express my love for him in that way. That's the way he loved you. He suffered scorn and derision and shame. He took your sin upon himself. He suffered that way in your place. He loved you in that way. John 13, he loved his own who are in this world and he loved them to the end. It not only means the end of his life, it means to the end of himself. It means to the end, he loved them in every way imaginable. He loved them to the fullest possible expression of love. We have in this life only opportunity to express our love and our gratitude to the Lord, serving him in a similar way in this life. Bible says that we fill up in our flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. It has not been it has not only been appointed for you to believe, he tells the Philippians, but to suffer for his name. All of that, brothers and sisters, glorifies God. It magnifies his grace. Why? Because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. I would not love him if he had not loved me first. So now, because he loved me in that way, I want to love him back in that way, right? That should be the desire of our hearts, to love him, to express our devotion to him, to express our faith in him in those ways. We have this life to express our love for him that way, right? We will, unfettered by sin, with, with new heart, with obviously with glorified bodies, we're going to love him in a way in eternity um, that is going to magnify and glorify his grace. We have a limited time in this life uh, to love him in this specific way. And so, um, spend and be spent, right? Spend and be spent uh, for his sake. Um, let's go outside the camp, bearing his reproach, um, not uh, counting uh, uh, the shame, something to be feared, right? But counting the shame as he did, counting it as a common thing. Uh, let's bear his reproach. I think that, that is something that in that day, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, at the judgment seat, that will magnify and glorify his grace. Right? Uh, it will magnify the grace of God that he poured out such love upon his people that do the grace of God at work in them, they suffered in his name on account of his cause for his glory. Right? And that's not to our own praise, that's to his praise, amen? So I, let's, uh, I, I, I wanna have that view of my own life and ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you'll join me in that. And let's, uh, let's do that together as the church to serve him in those ways. I think it's just a, a beautiful testimony of God's grace to us through the gospel. And 
This life will be over before you know it. We'll be in heaven with the Lord. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for this, uh, this obvious, clear teaching in your word that believers will receive reward before the judgment seat of Christ and how that reward glorifies you and magnifies your grace and just terminates upon your goodness and compassion to us. And help us, Lord. I pray, I pray that you would lavish your grace upon us. Pour it on us, Lord. Like Peter, wash my whole body, right? <laughs> just pour it on us, Lord. And then I pray you would glorify your own name in uh, causing us to labor with that grace, uh, to bear fruit for your name, uh, to your glory. Uh, Lord, may it terminate upon your glory and prevent us, Lord, uh, protect us from imagining uh, for any moment that it would in any way uh, terminate upon our own glory or be meritorious. Uh, we know that is not the case. Uh, may it be, Lord, for your glory, for the glory of your own name. May it be for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we, your people, have a desire in our hearts to labor more abundantly than they all uh, because of the grace that was abundantly lavished upon us. May we, in the words of Romans chapter 12, bind ourselves to the horns of the altar and, and present ourselves a whole and continual burnt offering that you might be magnified and gracious, infinitely gracious, and merciful, infinitely merciful lavish such mercies upon us by the mercies of God we present ourselves in the sacrifices. We love you. We thank you. Help us when we pray. May Jesus Christ receive for and suffering. In Jesus' name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.